Hello and welcome to the Green Canary. Today on the show, we're going to talk about a landmark meeting. And normally, when people have a meeting, you don't go, oh, people met and they decided something, and that's really newsworthy. But that actually is what happened. The environment ministers met in Canberra. We'll tell you what came out of that. It is literally quite momentous uh, what happened. We're also going to crack open Australia's liveliest green debate. No, not coal, not the climate wars. I'm talking about ibises. Everyone has an opinion on ibises. Are they urban menaces or are they true miracles of nature? Now, we have an interview with someone who has some fascinating ibis insights to share. So please stick around for that. We're also going to talk today about some draconian new Victorian laws aimed at forest protesters. Not happy about those at all. And we're also not happy about this either. We're going to recap the tragic, you have to say, story of Freya, the Norwegian walrus. Yeah, it didn't end well at all. Anyway, I'm Ant Sharwood, and this week, I'm afraid I'm again not joined by my usual co-host, Elfie Scott. Elfie is still on her well-earned holiday in, I believe, Germany and Portugal. I say I believe because I'm not quite sure how things are going regarding getting to Portugal at the moment. There's been some industrial action over there. I do know she's going okay in the German league, though. I had a little look at her Instagram. There was some beer there. There looked like a lovely German Pilsner. I think there was also a Rudler which I believe is some sort of beer and fruity mix. Not exactly sure what one is. She can maybe tell us about her Rattler when she comes back. But speaking of fruity mixes, we do have a fruity mix of content today. So I have gotten today's terrible segue out of the way nice and early, you'll be pleased to hear. And let's move on to our first story. So, as mentioned, yep, there was a meeting. There was a meeting in Canberra. Now, that's not news. There are always meetings in Canberra. That's what Canberra's there for. Doesn't that mean meeting place? Isn't that one of the interpretations of the name of Canberra? Anyway, this was a meeting that, that happened on uh, Friday afternoon, last Friday. And gee, who says any, no one ever gets any real work done on Fridays? Because this was serious stuff. This was the meetings. Uh, this was the meeting of the Energy National Cabinet. It was a, a get-together of all the environment ministers from the states and territories, as well, of course, uh, as, as the federal guy, Chris Bowen. What they came up with was, as flagged in the intro, n- nothing short of momentous. Um, they have agreed to make emissions reduction a key national energy goal. They have also agreed to actually add the goal of emissions reduction to the national energy objective. Now, the National Energy Objective, or the NEO. What actually is the National Energy Objective? What is this thing that they've added the goal of emissions reduction to? Well, the NEO, it's actually a thing that falls under the auspices of the Australian Energy Market Commission, or the AEMC. Oh my gosh, that is two two acronyms already. But what you really need to know is there's a thing called the Australian Energy Market Commission, I believe they provide advice to governments on our energy requirements. They have a thing called the National Energy Objective, and it never previously said anything about emissions reductions. So we had all this advice going to government, this is what we need, this is how we're going to make energy happen, this is how we're going to make the electricity system work. No mention whatsoever previously about 
emissions. That's all in there now. We're not having a conversation at any level anymore about our electricity system, about our overall energy system, without talking about emissions reduction as part of the equation. So it's sort of hard to encapsulate all that into one line, but that's what happened in Canberra. Um, and you know, it's worth mentioning that the environment, I suppose, was was more ripe than it has been for many years for this to happen. Um, we currently have six of eight Labor premiers or, or chief ministers in the case of the territories. Um, only uh, New South Wales and Tasmania um, have Liberal uh, premiers who, who in the past have, have been likely to be more resistant to, to pushing towards renewables. That's actually not true at all in the case of the New South Wales uh, man, Matt Keane. Uh, his, his government has actually been quite friendly towards renewables. Um, but anyway, here is what climate change and energy minister, as in the federal one, Chris Bowen said after the meeting, he said this was the first change to the national energy objectives in 15 years. He said this is important. It sends a very clear direction to our energy market operators that they must include emissions reductions in the work that they do. Australia, went on Chris Bowen, is determined to reduce emissions and we welcome investment to achieve it and we will provide a stable and certain policy framework. Now, others had comments to say on this. I, I was interested in, in the words from Greg Bourne. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by Bourne because he's a former president of BP Australasia. Um, he was even a former advisor to Margaret Thatcher, so, so how about that? But uh, Greg Bourne is also a climate councillor with uh, the Climate Council. Uh, so here was the uh, the Bourne uh, ultimatum or the Bourne legacy or whatever uh, little word you want to steal from the Matt Damon Bourne movie franchise. Anyway, Chris, uh, sorry, Greg Bourne of the Climate Council said, uh, the devil will be in the detail, but the agreement to add emissions to the national energy objectives is momentous. What's more, the cooperation between federal, state and territory ministers is enormously positive. Uh, this could not be further than where we were a couple of years ago, dot, 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 dot. So I'm excited about this. And look, it's not clear how this is all going to play out yet. Um, you need to remember that, that Australia uh, needs to increase our renewable energy capacity from all sources. Something like ninefold by 2050, if we are to reach net zero. So, wow. I mean, you would have to think there is now, between the present day and 2050, going to be literally tens of billions of uh, dollars spent in new infrastructure, um, in electricity generation, in storage, uh, in a range of measures to fast track the shift from coal and gas to a renewables-based grid. It's, it's, it's going to be an exciting time, and we have legislatively cleared the pathway for that. That's what happened at the meeting on Friday. But a couple of other things happened that are really worth mentioning. Um, there was also a strategy announced by Chris Bowen to, to shore up gas supplies. Now, now, we all know we need to wean ourselves off gas, but we all know we can't have a crisis again like we had two months ago in Queensland when there was a cold snap and the gas supplies almost got, got uh, turned off until AEMO, one of our favourite acronyms, stepped in. So hopefully the shocks to the electricity market will be minimised. If we can just get a bit more of that gas that's going offshore, keep it back here. And AEMO will be given some powers to, to uh, procure some more gas and, and, and stop that happening. 
Um, and look, the, the other thing that came out of the First Nations, uh, sorry, out of the meeting was the First Nations Clean Energy Strategy. And we're spending a lot of time on this meeting, but, but it is quite momentous that the gas crisis is on its way to being solved. Uh, as mentioned at the top, we, we totally have a plan now to uh, consider emissions reduction in every aspect of the electricity grid. And I think the third big thing to come out of it was what I just mentioned, the First Nations Clean Energy Strategy. Now, this will uh, enable Australia's First Nations people to have a share. Uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will have a share in the benefits of what the government is calling the renewables revolution. Now, here's a quote from Chris Croker. Chris is a descendant of the Laritja people of Central Australia. He also happens to be the managing director of Impact Investment Partners, and he is a member of the First Nations Clean Energy Network Steering Group. So, he's got fingers in lots of pies that matter on this issue. This is what Chris Croker said. He said, a clear government strategy co-designed with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders will enable engagement in the massively growing clean energy and investment fields. Working together, we can unlock investment in new energy projects and solve energy security challenges. We will advance economically and ensure a clean energy future for our people. I just think this is visionary stuff. This is terrific stuff. And, you know, if they're going to be building massive solar farms in the NT or, 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 or wherever or whatever, uh, it's it's wonderful that, that we can... Um, include all Australians, including our First Nations people, in in um, the, the benefits that are sure to flow. So if you want to know more about that, there is a website. I'll chuck it in the newsletter this week as well. Uh, it's firstnationscleanenergy.org.au. But enough, enough about the meeting of environment ministers in Canberra on Friday, even though, as mentioned, several really important and terrific initiatives came out of it. I want to have a little change of pace. You know, we talk so much about politics and energy on the Green Canary podcast, and inevitably I think anyone in the green news in the environment space does, because everything sort of ends up in that area, especially in the age of climate change. But sometimes when you're presenting issues about the environment, it's nice to talk about the actual, oh, you know, environment. <laughs> and so a book came across my desk this week, uh, or news about it anyway, uh, it's called A Guide to the Creatures in Your Neighbourhood. And it's basically, there's a bunch of scientists and researchers who've gotten together, and they're telling us all about the wildlife that lives in our cities, which, of course, is where most of us do live. I believe about 90% of Australians are actually urban people. A lot of our wildlife has migrated to the cities to share our living spaces with us. There is so much to learn, including, as mentioned in the intro, ibises. Are ibises just misunderstood genius, geniuses, or are they pests? I'm definitely on the genius side. I'm very partial to ibis, but uh, let's have the chat. Let us go to the interview. The interview is with Dr. John Martin. He's from the Institute of Science and Learning at the Taronga Conservation Society. He's one of the authors of this book, which, as I said, is called A Guide to the Creatures in Your Neighbourhood. Now, I've actually, author um, I've actually authored, I've actually, sorry, interviewed John Martin before, He's a great guy. There's nothing he doesn't know about Aussie urban wildlife, cockatoos, possums, ibises, you absolutely name it. 
and I really hope you enjoy our chat. Okay, so as promised, I have a very special guest for you today on The Green Canary. Now, Dr. John Martin is one of my heroes. I have a lot of heroes, so don't uh, get too big on yourself there, Dr. John Martin. But <laughs> one of my heroes is, is John. John's, John's an expert in a lot of things, uh, especially birds, but he's written or he's co-authored this terrific book called A Guide to the Creatures in Your Neighbourhood. Now, this is a book which is part of a thing called the Urban Field Naturalists Project. And as I understand it, that's a collaboration between all sorts of experts uh, in the environment and, 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 and more widely. Um, that is sort of, the project is all about helping us notice and learn about uh, and, of course, appreciate urban wildlife. Now, 90% almost of Australians still live in the urban environment, you know, a land of sweeping plains and droughts and flooding rains. We romanticise Australia, but the hard fact is that most of us do live in the urban environment and therefore apart from when we go away on holidays or, or whatever most of our interactions with wildlife do take place in the urban environment so john and his co-authors have and i should list them quickly zoe uh Sadikirsky, dr andrew burrell professor dita hachuli and associate professor tom van duren as well as Dr. John Martin, our guest today. They have put together a terrific guide that helps us understand, know more about, and as I said earlier, appreciate the urban wildlife. How are you, John? <laughs> I'm great, Ant. Uh, really, really happy to be chatting with you. And uh, I like that framing. You know, so many of us, or the majority of us Australians, and, and globally, over 50% of the global population live in urban areas. And that figure is increasing uh, across the world and in, in Australia. So, you know, appreciating nature in our everyday lives, and whether that's walking to the bus stop or going to the local park or the beach, uh, is important because if we don't appreciate it, uh, we don't value it. And equally, it's good for us. You know, there's a lot of information about health benefits of spending time outdoors uh, and just de-stressing in, in this busy life that we lead. So, you know, let's chat a bit about urban nature. Yeah, so urban nature is important to us um, for all the reasons you just mentioned. But, of course, it's important to the animals and the creatures themselves because as so much of the world becomes urbanised, a lot of creatures have to adapt and have nowhere to live but the urban area or indeed migrate to the urban area because of trees and other things we've planted. Uh, that's pretty much the case, isn't it? Animals are incredibly adaptive when it comes to urban areas. Yeah, and plants and fungi and, and you know, so yeah. um, it's, it's our cities in Australia and, and certainly in, in a number of places around the world are surprisingly biodiverse and so that's there's lots of different plants and animals in them uh, despite the fact that they are when you think about it absolutely alien landscapes that are made of concrete and bitumen and have these one ton vehicles speeding along <laughs> uh, you know that it's uh, and also this um, apex predator us humans once upon a time of course uh, you know we we were key 
predators in the landscape. And we obviously still have huge impacts on a lot of species, but that's through mainly habitat destruction and commercial farming and things like this, if we're talking about fisheries. But, uh, but you know, the fact that you and I can go to a local park and throw some, some seed or bread to, to some ducks and even have something like a rainbow lorikeet land on our hand and take seed directly from our hand, this is a very unique behaviour and, and, and shows adaptive uh, flexibility by those species to actually interact with humans and not see them as a threat, but to actually see them as a, a resource in their, in their environment. And so, I'll just caveat that by saying yeah. I don't encourage feeding wildlife, but I do acknowledge <laughs> that people get a lot of enjoyment and uh, connection with nature through those interactions. Indeed, indeed. And, and you know, no one would certainly... Um... Uh, say it's a good idea to uh, give your leftover quarter pounder to an ibis, for example, but we do, uh, you know, absolutely see animals feeding off our waste as well as stuff we actually give them, whether we should or not, as you say. But let's talk about the ibis. Let's talk about three or four species um, that show, as you put it a moment ago, adaptive flexibility. I think the ibis is the classic case. Can you please tell us how did the ibis get to the cities and why are they so good at living here? And should we love ibis? Answer all three of those really quickly if you can. Uh, absolutely, we should love ibis. Yes, uh, yeah. we've been jokingly calling them the Australian flamingo because branding is everything. Yeah. Uh, look, how did they get to the cities? That one's we're less certain about, but we know that there's been big droughts throughout Eastern Australia, where mainly what we'd describe as Western New South Wales and Western Victoria and Queensland. That's where there's these big wetland systems that we've modified by building dams and pumping out a lot of water for agriculture. And so when the habitat dried up out there associated with droughts, these birds being adaptive moved to the coast and learned that in the cities, there was a buffet of food available. <laughs> there was accommodation left, right and centre, which was new habitat for them, palm trees. None of them occur out in the Western wetlands. Mm. And uh, nowadays, they're, I, I call them condominiums of uh, ibis. <laughs> they're like a unit block. Um, and of course, there's lots of fresh water because us humans love a water feature. So, you know, for ibis, you've ticked all three boxes and they have thrived. The I know they used to come from, you spoke about Western wetlands, places like the Macquarie Marshes. Have they actually abandoned those places? Now that they've filled in again with a couple of La Nina summers, um, has there been any signs of ibises packing up and going home? <laughs> so we don't have any evidence of them packing up, but we do still see some white ibis out in the Western wetlands, but very few compared to some of the historical records and in particular compared to their, um, their cousin, the straw-necked ibis, which is otherwise known as the farmer's friend. And, and people might be more familiar, well, familiar with it in the country landscape. It's got all black feathers on top, which actually have a bit of a, a glistening green-grey purple in the right light and it's white underneath and um, it's it's more comfortable in the farm paddocks whereas the the white ibis that we know of in the city despite of us thinking of it as the tip turkey and and the bin chicken it's actually more of a wetland specialist so it doesn't like the farm paddocks as much as it likes the floodplains. Fascinating so uh, let's move on to a couple of um, things that hang out in trees that maybe aren't birds. Now um I'm fascinated by koalas. Koalas are such a such a um, 
you know, controversial and in some ways tragic uh, story in recent years in Australia. And there's there's still so much land being cleared, which is koala habitat. Is there anywhere in the cities that they can live with all those cars? Yeah, cars and dogs are a significant issue for koalas. Uh, look, they can live in the city, but it really isn't great habitat. And this is what comes back to habitat corridors. And so I've seen koalas in the city of Adelaide, for example, right in the, near the city centre, near the uh, Adelaide Oval. Um, Adelaide, it's, it's rebranding itself as Green Adelaide and they have uh, the River Torrens through the city and they have green corridors that link the Adelaide Hills in, right into the city and hence koalas can mosey on all the way through. They do have to negotiate a few roads and cars and, of course, there are plenty of dogs. So the right city, technically, yes, but always going to be a very dangerous habitat for koalas. Yeah. What about flying foxes? And flying foxes, when you get up and close to them, they have, and that's why they're called a fox. A fox has a very dog-like face. Yeah. Uh, they have a cute puppy face and they have big eyes that look at you and, and you know, they have a lot of personality. Um, but the thing that a lot of people may not realise is because people see them as a, a nuisance and a pest sometimes because of the noise and the odour that, that's associated with big roosts and their foraging at night, but they are vital pollinators for the landscape. They move up to 300 kilometres in a single night and they're connecting the trees across the landscape when they make those big movements. And 300 kilometres in a night. How, how fast do they fly? <laughs> well, yeah. So, you know, if you're doing that in 10 hours, you go on 30 k's an hour, wow. but they can go faster than that because they also do a bit of foraging through the night as well. You know, you've got to have some energy if you're going yeah. to fly 300 k's. So, they're, so they're, they're pooping everywhere and, you know, I, I get them in my yard. Um, they're eating, for example, the fruit from the Moreton Bay fig trees, I believe, here in Sydney where I am, and yep. uh, pooping it out and uh, more fig trees. Well, absolutely. But even more important than that is think of them like a giant bee. So we all appreciate, and there's a lot of media at the moment about the fact that pollinators are so important, bees in the landscape pollinating the flowers, really important for agricultural crops, also for native plants. But when you build a huge city between two patches of native vegetation, and let's think of Royal National Park south of Sydney and Karingai Chase National Park north of Sydney, no animals other than flying foxes are actively connecting the trees in those two habitats in a single night. So some birds, some honeyeater birds will make those movements, but not they're more moving through the landscape, whereas flying foxes, they actually are really important pollinators for a bunch of our woodland trees across eastern and northern Australia. Wow. Our, our, our guest this week is uh, Dr. John Martin, who I uh, said in the intro uh, is from the Institute of Science and Learning at the Taronga Conservation Society. And the book is a guide to the creatures in your neighbourhood. Uh, it is a, uh, a work by the Urban Field Naturalists Project. Now, before I let you go, John, um, what, what can people take from a guide to the creatures in your neighbourhood? It was published uh, just a week or so ago, earlier this month, and it's the sort of book I would love to have on my shelf so that when something lands on a branch or crawls along, I can go, ooh, what was that? and know more about it. Is, is, is that the sort of uh, purpose that the book serves? What we want people to take away is 
uh, nature is all around us and we can actually enjoy it every day of our lives. And, and by connecting with nature uh, and slowing down and observing it, we can actually have a greater appreciation of the plants and animals that, that we sometimes take for granted, but are actually really valuable and, and make our lives more interesting and more meaningful. Well, that is exactly what they do. And you have helped do that to make our lives more interesting and meaningful with this wonderful book. I wish you and your colleagues all the best of success with it, as well as with your ongoing work with the Urban Field Naturalists Project. Dr. John Martin, thank you for coming on The Green Canary. An absolute pleasure. And I encourage people to read the book, but also go to the website for the Urban Field Naturalist Project and learn about some of the stories and how they can contribute and participate. Great stuff. Thanks, John. Cheers. How good was that? I love John. I love his work. Can't wait to get a copy of the Guide to Creatures in Your Neighbourhood. Perhaps for Father's Day, kids. Are you listening? Uh, probably not. They're probably watching TikTok or some ridiculous thing. But let us transition to mulch, the little clippings across our desk each week. Now, this one actually popped up last week. For one reason or another, we didn't quite get there. But I just want to mention it quickly now. It's about the new heavy-handed laws in Victoria uh, to stop forest protesters. They have been pushed through Parliament in Victoria. Um, the Sustainable Forests Timber Amendment brackets, timber harvesting, safety zones, uh, pass through the upper house. They're basically trying to keep people out of forest coops that they are logging. Uh, under the soon-to-be law, the maximum jail sentence and fines for hindering, obstructing or interfering with timber harvesting operations are going to be up to 12 months in jail or more than $21,000. These are big, big, big fines slash sentences. Why? What is going on? Well, the Victorian government, just as a reminder, they've committed to stopping native forest logging by 2030. There is a phase out to begin in a couple of years. So it is on the way out. Seems like this is some sort of mechanism to ensure that the last eight years or so of, uh, you know, destroying endangered glider habitat uh, goes perfectly smoothly for, smoothly for Vic forests. Um, I did quickly ask my friend Sarah Rees for comment. Uh, Sarah is a forest advocate. She is a photographer. Uh, whose works can be found in the very, very popular book, The Great Forest. Um, she lives in, in Victoria's forest region, in the central forest, in, in, in the mountain ash forests there nearby. Uh, I said, Sarah, what is going on with these laws? She teed off. She was angry. She said it's a ridiculous series of changes that will further hinder forestry's attempt to regain its social license, which is an interesting point. She also said, Whilst many businesses would love to entertain the idea of incarcerating their critics, the government has actually developed a mechanism to do it. Ouch! Tell it like it is, Sarah. It does seem a little bit ha uh, heavy-handed and, you know, well might you tweet, uh, hashtag I stand with Dan, but the native forests do not stand with Dan, that is. Anyway, all right, look, in one more quick little story across our desk, um, what a disturbing tale this is. Surely by now you've heard about Freya the Walrus in Norway. Um, look, Freya took a bit of a liking to, liking to Oslo and to flouncing about or whatever walruses do in, in, in the Oslo fjords. Um, 
it was a bit like the seal that sat on the Opera House steps in Sydney. Uh, to me, I thought it was quite charming. Uh, no one ever suggested killing the seal, but Norwegian authorities have euthanized um, Freya, which is such a polite word. Like, they sort of had to do it. I'd prefer killed or murdered or slayed because I don't think they deserve a polite word like euthanize. This did not seem like a polite thing to do to a walrus that was only being a walrus. Now, here's what the Norwegian authorities said. The decision to euthanize was taken on the basis of a global evaluation. Oh, blah, 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 blah. It was, you know, I mean, a global evaluation of the persistent threat to human security? What? What? Are we talking about a nuclear warhead or a walrus here? We carefully examined all the possible solutions. We concluded that we could not guarantee the well-being of the animal by any of the means available. What? Now, this was to an extent our fault. Apparently people were getting too close to Freya. People would not back off even though repeatedly warned, go away, let the walrus be the walrus, even though it's doing so in an urban setting. Um, but I just, you know, and it's ironic that we've had an interview today about animals thriving in the urban setting, and then you get a bloody walrus in the fjords in Oslo, and they go, bang, bang, see you later, walrus. It's, it's, it's just, I mean, if you're going to get near a walrus with its tusks, which, by the way, are about three feet long, so don't say you never learn anything on the Green Canary podcast. Also, they're, they're not tusks like an elephant tusk. They're, they're actually, um, they're teeth. They're canine, they're canine teeth. They just, they just look tusky, and we can call them tusks. Anyway, if you're stupid enough to get near a walrus tusks, a pair of walrus tusks, and you get gored to death, I, I, for one, believe you have earned your Darwinian comeuppance. That is not very pleasant, but stay away from the walrus, please, people, so that next time, if there's another one, we don't have to shoot it. Really. Anyway, that is not... Look, we, we do have a rule at the Green Canary that we're supposed to end on a happy animal story. Go back and listen to the feature interview. There are lots of happy animal stories in there. I didn't mean to end with Freya the Walrus. Walrus. R.I.P. Freya. But anyway, uh, hopefully we'll be back with some better news stories next week. And that will do us for this week. As ever, we'd like to pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land on which this pod is record recorded. They are, of course, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. And we acknowledge that this land was stolen and never ceded. Also, before we go this week, I'd just like to remind you as ever to email hello at thegreencanary.co if you'd like our newsletter. I got lots of emails this week. Thank you all. The landing page is coming. You'll just be able to click, but it's easy to email as well. Uh, if you email it, I'll, I'll reply straight away, or someone will, within an hour or so, So unless you send it at three in the morning. So um, please email hello at thegreencanary.co. Newsletter comes out Wednesday. It is Australia's chirpiest environmental newsletter. And don't forget to chirp along with us at Green Canary Pod on Twitter and Green Canary Media on Instagram. That is all. We'll catch you in the newsletter on Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye.